Go ahead and take a seat, please. Well, the year was 1948, and Texans were going to decide who they were going to send to the Senate. There were two men who were involved in the race. That was Coke Stevenson and Lyndon Johnson. But what no one knew at the time was how much of an impact this would have, not just on Texas, but on politics overall in the United States. In fact, 40 years later, the then governor of Texas, John Connolly, said of the 1984 race, this was the beginning of modern politics. There was, on the one hand, Coke Stevenson, who was strongly favored to win. He had been a very popular governor of Texas from 1941 to 1947. And when his staff would mention things like his needing to campaign more, or advertise more, or present his ideas in different ways, Coke Stevenson would not have anything to do with any of those suggestions. He said they were political games, and he would not play political games. He put his trust in one thing alone, his strong reputation and his long track record of selflessly serving the people of Texas. And so he said, if my record does not warrant my election to the Senate, then I ought to stay home. The people know enough to make their choice. And then on the other hand, there was Lyndon Johnson, who was bringing in all sorts of new ways of campaigning in a political fashion. One of the things that differentiated the two of them is Johnson's use of polling. Polling, of course, is when they ask would-be voters about their opinions about different things. For example, do you think that gun control laws should be tightened or they should be less restrictive? Do you think that people in prison should be rehabilitated or punished? And of course, questions like who are you going to vote for? But the problem was in the 1940s, it was very expensive to do polling, about $6,000 for a poll. And so at that point, the most that anybody would poll was once a month at most, or in three to four times throughout an entire campaign. But Lyndon Johnson wanted to do it every single week. And he didn't want to just have one firm do it. He wanted two and sometimes three firms to do polling all simultaneously. Because Johnson did not want to guess what the Texas voter wanted. He wanted to know what they wanted and how badly they wanted and what they were willing to do to get it. And he wanted to know what he needed to do and how he needed to speak and what he needed to change in order to get people to vote for him. And so that's exactly what Johnson did. Became the voice that people wanted him to become, became the person that people wanted him to be. See, what the 1984 Senate elections in Texas highlight is a beginning and an early gap between public persona and the private person. The focus of the private person is on who I am, but the public persona is only concerned about one thing, who I appear to be. It's the difference between being seen someone and being concerned about being seen as someone. Persona is about creating a reputation, even if that reputation is not rooted in the reality of who a person is. Those focused on persona will do whatever it takes to be seen, to be understood as a certain kind of person. Those focused on persona will become whatever the polls need them to become. They will be master chameleons. They will change according to whatever the circumstances they find themselves in. They want to be seen as a certain person. And if you strip away all the persona, all you're going to find is an empty shell of a person underneath it all. 
In Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus addresses the church at Sardis. This is a church, apparently, who has been more concerned about their persona than actually about who they are underneath everything. And as a result, they have become spiritually complacent. And Jesus will offer them some invitations as to how they can change. And he'll even help them to realize what is at stake if they refuse to change. And the words to the church in Sardis are the same as, end in the same as all of the other letters, saying in 3.6, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And in that we are reminded this is not just simply a letter for that church, but it's plural. It is for all churches, us included. So Jesus began his words to Sardis with a phrase that we've been accustomed to hearing so far in Revelation. Jesus says, I know. And the I know formula creates a certain expectation in us. Jesus says, I know when he is going to offer words of encouragement and words of understanding to people. I mean, remember, it feels great, doesn't it, for someone to say, I know what you're going through. I understand it, and I'm sympathetic towards it. We've seen these words before. To Ephesus, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. In Smyrna, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty. He says, I know the slander that is on the part of those who say that they are Jews, but are not. To Pergamum, he says, I know that you are living where Satan's throne is. To Thyatira, I know that your last works are greater than the first. And so Jesus will use this I know formula as, a, as an encouragement to people. And then there's this other formula, this I know your works. And here we see whenever Jesus says this phrase, he is about to commend them or praise them and recognize some of the things that they've been doing well. In Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. In Thyatira, he says, I know your works, your love, faith, servant, service, and patient endurance. And so as we read Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, we need to recognize we have an expectation just like Sardis would have had an expectation. They were used to people saying all sorts of wonderful and glowing things about them. And so whenever Jesus says, I know your works, they are now prepared for Jesus to talk about all the great and wonderful things he's seen them do. And yet, what is it that Jesus says? You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. And this is the first church that Jesus offers no words of praise and no words of encouragement in his introduction. People who have a reputation. This is a congregation who is known by their name, that name referring to their reputation. It is their public persona. They have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is that they are dead. And we don't know who that reputation is with. Is it with other churches? Is it with people in their community? Is it with the Jews there? We we don't know who it's with, but people are looking around and they are used to saying great and wonderful and glowing things about the church in Sardis. But Jesus will not reaffirm that public persona. The problem in Sardis is that they have disconnected their congregational persona with their true congregational identity. Their problem is in many ways that they are actually functioning in a way that is opposite than many churches. Usually the problem is, is that people will look at them and they will think this church is in bad shape. But the reality, Jesus is saying, no, in fact, you are in good shape. 
As you think about what Jesus said to Smyrna, he says, I know that you are afflicted and poor, but despite that presumption, he says, you are in fact rich. And Jesus himself is being, is used to being understood as something, someone to be in bad shape, but who is in fact in good shape. As he said that the one who was dead, but now has come to life. But the problem in Sardis is the opposite of these things. They appear to be in good shape, but the truth and the reality is that they are in bad shape. They appear to be alive, but they are dead. How does that happen? How do we appear to be something that we, as a matter of fact, are not? At some point, churches or individuals will start to care more about what people think or say about them than who they really are. Maybe Shakespeare should have written to be or to be appear to be. That is the question. We do know that this poison can inflict religious leaders. We know that Jesus said of the leaders of his time that they wanted to appear to be righteous. And so they would stand in public squares and they would say long prayers. And they wanted to appear to be righteous. And so they would put on their long flowing robes as they went out in public. And they wanted to appear to be righteous. And so they would write their big checks to the church. But is there a difference between wanting to appear to be righteous and wanting to actually be righteous? And this seems to be the heart of the problem in Sardis. They want a reputation, but they're not willing to go through what it takes to have a true change. I think it's easier, isn't it, to look good than it is to actually become good, to appear to be something rather than actually being someone And we live in a day and an age where we have more opportunity probably than any other generation to create, edit, craft, customize, and present any kind of persona that we want to the world. So much of our world is online and we have the opportunity to present what is called our curated self. Your curated self is kind of like your real self, but just edited with all the bad parts cut out and with all the good parts presented to everyone else done anything wrong, bad, sinful this week, what's the likelihood you're going to sit down on Facebook and say, hey, I got to let all of you guys know I really blew it. No, we don't talk about those sort of things. We edit those parts of our lives out. We present only what's best. And we, we don't live in a world where we sync up with people in real time. And so we can write a text and we can ask someone else, does this make me look like a jerk? And if they say yes, we change it so that we don't look like a jerk. And so we can edit and present whatever self we want to present to the world. When something bad happens, it doesn't end up on our Facebook page or Twitter feed. But when something good happens, you become the most popular person in Billings. Well, that for sure is going to end up on your social media page, isn't it? Did you know that one third of people are now meeting their spouses online? That means your dating profile is a high stakes game. Did you know that 81% of people lie on their dating profile? Men lie about their height. On average, they say they're two inches taller than they really are. Women lie about their weight. On average, they're 35 pounds heavier than they say they are. And all of us lie about our age. On average, we say we're 10 years younger than we really are. And on the one hand, we can look at that and say, tisk tisk that people would present this persona that's not true to who they really are. But in many ways, can't we understand that temptation to want to appear to be better than we really are? 
to want to be seen in a certain way. Sardis, the church at Sardis needs to be reminded, and we need to be reminded as followers of Jesus, that even if you can trick everyone in your church and in your community and in your family, there's absolutely no way we're going to trick Jesus. He knows who we are. And Jesus will offer five commands or imperatives for the Christians in Sardis, beginning in Revelation 3, 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your words perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. So there are these five words there that are highlighted. Words that are Jesus' instructions, his commands to the church in Sardis. And we're going to look one by one at each of these commands. The first, of course, is to wake up. As humans, it's not possible for us to pay attention to everything that's happening around us. In fact, the, the, the current understanding is that we can process about 120 bits of information per second. And if there's more going on in the world, you have to filter that out. And so there are these neurons in our brains that are called attention filters. They, they look at things and say, hey, if I keep seeing this thing over and over again, you don't need to pay attention to that. Just simply go through the motions with these types of things. And the problem with that, it's helpful to us in that we don't get overwhelmed. But the problem is that even sometimes amazing and great and wonderful things, we can just simply get used to them as if it's another day in the office. I used to live about 20 minutes from Niagara Falls. I remember the first, maybe the second time thinking, man, this is really cool. By the hundredth time, I could not imagine why anybody would fly from anywhere in the world and come and look at this puddle of water falling over a cliff. When Jesus says, wake up, he is calling the church in Sardis to step back, to pay attention, to register consciously to the reality of their situation, to begin to make choices, not by default, but on intentionality. Because we can get stuck sometimes even in the midst of the most amazing things, being in just a default position. I came across this TikTok video this week, and I have some of the images there for you. It begins by saying, four years ago today... I walked down the aisle to marry the love of my life. So this is the wife sharing about her wedding. Then she says, it was one of the most important and emotional moments of our lives. And my husband did the most romantic thing. He checked his phone. Wake up. You're in the middle of a wedding. Don't look at your phone. And in a very similar way, Jesus is, is afraid that people who are in relationship with him have fallen asleep and are just habitually doing things that they're not even aware of, that they're not even thinking about, and he needs them to wake up. He then tells them to strengthen what remains. When I first saw this idea or notion of strengthening what remains, I, I read it individualistically. That, that, you know, it's kind of like the scrawny guy. He goes in the gym and he builds up his muscle and now he's strong. And so we need to go into a room of prayer and we need to strengthen ourselves for this battle. But then as I started to look at how this word is used throughout the New Testament, I found something different. Its most frequent use is used in context of God strengthening someone. The second most frequently way that it's used is one person strengthening someone else. And at best, there is one single reference, James 5.8, to possibly someone strengthening themselves. In other words, strengthening is a community activity. I'm not just concerned about waking myself up, 
We as a group of people need to wake each other up. We have obligations and responsibilities to those who are part of the community of believers to strengthen each other. If you think about sleeping and there's, there's, a, there's a whole group of people sleeping there, you're not wanting to be quiet and let them keep sleeping if it's time to wake up. If there's a fire in the house, you need to wake up everyone. So the strengthening here is as you become aware of the fact that I am not living as God wants me to live, we need to realize we need to be encouraging others for them to also wake up. We use our strength for others. And in the process, we become more aware of what God's doing with us. I think that fits with the notion of what's said next. For this, I have found your works. I have not found your works perfect in the sight of God. God calls us to certain works that are to be completed or perfected within the context of our community. We've seen works like love and faith and service and patient endurance. These are the kinds of works that should be fulfilled in the midst of the body of believers. And yet it's not happening in Sardis. And Jesus calls them to it. The third command then is to remember. And when they are to remember, they are not to remember some generalized teaching, but something very specific. The, the, the words that are used here, the words of, of receiving and the words of having heard are gospel-oriented words. I'll give you one example out of 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you receive the word of God, that which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but in reality is what it is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying you need to go back to the cross. Remember that which you heard and that which you received. We need to go back to the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. We need to remember that he came to bring us new life. We need to remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to remember that apart from Christ, there is no hope in this world. We need to remember the good news. And it is in the process of remembering the good news that we are once again transformed in the way that God wants us to be transformed. The word remember is in the perfect tense, which means there's something that happened in the past that has implications in the future. And when we go back and we remember what we have received, we remember what we have heard, then of that message, we are then to once again obey it and repent. Those being our fourth and fifth commands from Jesus. We usually break these into two different elements. You obey and then you repent or you repent and then you obey. But here it seems to be a simultaneous movement. When you once again encounter the gospel, it will be something you obey. And in the process of obeying it, you repent. And I think it's important for us to notice that the pathway forward here is not to get a stronger resolution to do better good works. Jesus wants them to produce, to fulfill, to perfect their good works, but he doesn't say, now get to it. Focus on doing your good works, and here's the good works you need to do. He says, come back to the cross, and after you spend time in the presence of the cross, it will then once again motivate you to perfect the good works of Jesus Christ. So the good news is the source of our salvation, but is also the fuel for our good works. As I think about this, I'm reminded of something that Robert Persig wrote. He talked about the difference between ego climbing and selfless climbing. He and his 11-year-old son, Chris, were hiking in Bozeman. And he said, from an outside perspective, what he and Chris were doing was the exact same thing. 
But he said nobody would know that Chris was an ego climber, which meant Chris, as he climbed, he climbed because he had something to prove. He had to show his dad how strong he was, how capable he was. And because of that, wherever he was on the climb, he was never satisfied. He wanted to be just a little bit further. He wanted to go just a little bit faster. And in the end, Chris found himself very worn out and very tired as an ego climber. But Robert, who was a much older man, said that he was a selfless climber, one who sees climbing as something that we do to enjoy the beauty of a moment. Each step is an act of devotion and submission. It is a celebration of the fact that you're healthy enough to get out and walk and a celebration of the beauty of the great outdoors. And wherever you are on the mountain, you're thankful just to be there. And I think about that as I think about what Jesus is teaching about the good works. He's not wanting us to do good works to somehow build up some public persona, that, that we do good works in order to be seen by men, that we do good works in order that people might think and say things about us or for approval. And this can be even true of God. Sometimes we do good works to say, hey, God, I want you to see this. I want you to look at this. But good works are simply acts of devotion and submission. I'm so thankful, God, that I get to serve you. I'm thankful that I get to obey you. I'm thankful that I get to live in the pathway of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus wants us to do good works, but not good works in order to pursue or build up some public persona, but in order to transform our true identity. And Jesus does offer a warning. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Really, Jesus is repeating the call to wake up because everything hinges on us paying attention. Everything hinges on us stepping back, looking at our actions and our deeds. Where are we focusing? Where are we spending our time? What is it we're pursuing? What is it that we love? And the only way to get out of this rut is to once again to wake up and to begin this process anew. Jesus then concludes in verse 4 and following saying, Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and will not, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. In these final words to the church of Sardis, Jesus is repeating this theme of name. He began by talking about name in the sake of reputation, and it is here that he mentions three times name as something that is private, something that is personal. He says, still, there are a few names. It says people, but the word is their names. In Sardis, who have not sold their clothes. I will not blot your name out of the book of life, and I will confess your name before my father. While there are some who have become complacent, sleepwalking through their lives, Jesus recognizes that there are a few names who have not lived like others. They have not conformed to the world around them. They've remained pure. Jesus doesn't care about popularity. Jesus doesn't care about the opinions of others. Jesus doesn't care that some people have curated a wonderful public reputation. What Jesus cares about is who you truly are. Are you really a true disciple? And what should motivate us and what should propel us is the longing to have our names written in the book of life. People will live for reputation. 
Some people want to have their names chanted by crowds and groups of people. Some people want to always be the center of the tension, and that's what drives and motivates them. But Jesus says what should drive and motivate us is the longing to have our names written in the book of life. There's no sweeter word than to hear your name spoken on the lips of Jesus himself as he confesses you before the Father. There's nothing sweeter, nothing better than those words on the lips of Jesus. And as I think about the power of a name, both private and public, I want to go back to the 1948 Senate race in Texas. Ultimately, Coke Stevenson lost that race by 87 votes. Many people say that Stevenson lost because he refused to do what modern politics was demanding, to prioritize public persona over personal integrity. Stevenson, they say, is the last of a dying breed of politicians who believe that character and integrity was more important than creating a certain likable public persona. And yet, maybe, yes, from one perspective, Coke Stevenson lost. Who knows where his political career would have gone if he had won that race. But from another perspective, it could be said, said that he did not lose a thing because he kept what was most important to him, his reputation and his integrity. A journalist who visited with him many years after the election had this to say of the visit. After spending some time with Coke Robert Stevenson, here by the green rushing river, I'm wondering if he wasn't lucky to lose that Senate race by 87 votes. His nephew echoed the sentiment saying, thinking back on it now, I truly believe that getting beat for the Senate and marrying Tenney was the best thing that could have happened to him. Just remember this about the public persona. It's not real. It's a shadow. There is no substance or content to it. And so why would you trade what is real? What is lasting and what matters your personal integrity simply for a persona? I'm reminded of something that Jim Elliott once said. Elliott, of course, is the missionary who in 1956 was killed in Ecuador. But he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I hope that the same will be said of us. Even though we might lose in the eyes of popular opinion, even though people might not shout our names from mountaintops, none of that matters. All that matters is that we will hear Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. We remind ourselves that as we go from here, we don't go alone, but we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song. Um, I'll be in the back. Uh, some of our elders will be in the back. If there's something you want to talk about, uh, if you're seeking prayers, if you have any kind of a need, while we sing this next song, just come to the back and find one of us to talk with. Let's go and stand together and sing.